If you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn to the book of Colossians, to the New Testament epistle of Colossians. I'm going to be reading from the first chapter beginning at verse 15. If you're visiting with us this morning, I would like to say a particular welcome to you. Thank you for joining us for worship. If you've been away for a long time, welcome back. If you're at home watching, uh, thank you for joining us. I am doing a series called Gospel Living when Pastor Paul is absent from us, who has been leading us through a series on the book of Genesis. And when he returns in a couple of weeks, I'll be introducing the series that begins next week on the Psalms. And we are going to be going through the Psalms for the next number of weeks, looking at Christ in the Psalms. I look forward to that. Colossians 1.15 is the text that I am going to read, and it is one of the most soaring and uplifting and magnificent texts in all of the Bible, describing the greatness and the supremacy of our Lord. If I were to get on my knees and ask God for something so great beyond my imagination, so wonderful to me beyond my uh, ability to understand, it would not match what the Holy Spirit has written here about our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And it begins with the words, the he, he is. And the he of the text uh, comes from the paragraph above, which is the beloved son. And this goes on to describe what the beloved son is. And we also in the church are described often as the beloved of God. But for us to be called the beloved of God requires a truckload of grace, of mercy, and of kindness that we could be called God's beloved. But for the son to be called the beloved by the father requires no grace. There is no extension of kindness. There is no mercy shown to the Son in order to call him the Beloved. He is the Beloved because of who he is and his great worth. Not by grace, but by his identity and by his greatness. And so let's read about the Beloved of the Father. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things are created, not some things, but all things, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, not some things, but all things, were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, not some things, but all things. You'll, you'll see the pattern here. He's before all things, and in him not some things, but all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's ours. We are his. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, not in some things, but in everything, he might be preeminent. Significant word there, preeminent. For in him all, not some, but all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself, not some things, 
but all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There's his instrument, the cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, that's us. There's a lot of hostility in the world. Just for, just for a moment, think about how much hostility there is in the world. And that's how God describes us towards him. Hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his deeds in order to present you holy and blameless. Not good and better. <laughs> holy and blameless and above reproach. Before him. If, indeed, you continue in the faith. Not works, but in the faith. Stable and steadfast. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Which has been proclaimed. Key verb there. Proclamation. It's been proclaimed to us in all creation under heaven. And of which I, Paul, became a minister. The word of the Lord. Thank him for it. Would you please pray for me as I try to expound something of the beauty and the depth and the worth and the practical application of this text. The text identifies the supremacy of Christ. And that supremacy of Christ underlies not some things, <laughs> but all things in the life of the Christian. This is, in this epistle to the Colossian church, an example of the, the apostolic, the ancient, the historic method of pastoring, of coming to all things gospel, all things Christian. Every Christian duty, every Christian thought, Every Christian relationship, of which we all have many, it is our path to come to all of those things as we should, as God would have us, not in our own wisdom, not in our own strength, but by the study of Christ. And the supremacy of Christ and his reconciling of not some things, but all things in our life to himself. If you are born again, and if you are filled with the Spirit of God, then this is what your life is like, one of pushing Christ in this greatness, in this kind of supremacy, to the center of your thinking, to the center of your activity, to the center of your life over and over again. And by doing so, being sustained in grace. Sustained in grace because saturated with Christ. Who is not merely something or someone, but is everything in all things. Gospel living is a living that opens the door in every part of our life 
to the grace of God by seeing the supremacy of Christ in all things. <laughs> Not some things, but all things. As soon as Christ becomes something, he becomes less than all things. And if he is merely something, then other things are as great as he is. But he is not merely a something. He is all things. Here's the main point that I'd like to get across this morning. If you don't get anything else this morning, I hope to say this over and over again in different ways, and I hope that you can take at least this much away. That gospel living is a living that is gospel believing, intentionally believing the gospel day in and day out. And that believing of the gospel is believing what is behind the gospel and how, who it proclaims it to us, and that is a very, very great Christ. And living and believing the gospel not in something but in everything. And that grace of God coming to us, showing how Christ's supremacy really is the daily bread that we ask for, as, as our Lord taught us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. What is our daily bread? Well, it is not something. It is all things in Christ. And our daily bread and the grace of God to us is received by the constant presence and penetration of the greatness of Christ in all things. In Genesis, we've been learning that the early chapters of the Bible are the beginning of everything. I hope you've enjoyed that thought in that series, that really there is opened up to us in those chapters the, the beginning of, of everything, the beginning of, of life, the beginning of, of purpose, the, the beginning of work, the beginning of relationships, the beginning of marriage, the beginning of sin, the beginning of forgiveness. And as in Genesis is the beginning of everything, so also in Christ is the restoration of everything. Not some things, but everything is the restoration of all things. I'm going to work to, through two words that are in the text that I emphasized when I was reading it that are the words preeminent and the words proclaimed. First of all, the word preeminent. The preeminence of Christ for us in all things. If something is preeminent, it means that it's great in comparison to other things. It means that it has an undue significance and impression and influence over everything else in its sphere. It changes everything around it if something is preeminent. There's been somebody probably very preeminent in your life. Will was speaking a few moments ago about a father, and fathers are preeminent in our lives. And thank the Lord for that, for that kind of, of good preeminence. Other preeminence isn't so great. But it's something that, while we may not be always directly in the presence of, it's something that we are never unmindful of. That's what preeminence is. If you're in a room and someone is preeminent in that room amongst a group of people, it means that if not, even if not always addressing that person or being in front of that person directly, yet that person is always in your awareness because they are preeminent. If you've been reading through the 1055 program with our church in the last year, the, through this year, then you've read the first five books of the Bible the books of Moses. 
And I hope you've, you've done that. It's our hope that you've had the experience, perhaps even for the first time, of reading those first few books of the Bible. If you haven't and you'd like to jump in and you've let it down or let it laid it aside, jump in again with us and carry on with us. We're in the book of Joshua uh, right now in the Old Testament. But in reading through those first five books of the Bible, you've read through a lot of law. You've read through a lot of requirements, a lot of very uh, minutiae and tedious descriptions of how God's people are required by Moses to, to live in the camp, particularly through the book of Leviticus and Numbers. And you might, as you're reading through those books, you might be sitting there with your Bible open and going, why am I reading this? I'm going to tell you why, at least one of the reasons why. Here's why we encourage it and why I personally find it so very, very profitably to read not only the New Testament, but to read the Old Testament and to read them together, to constantly get me to the Christ that the New Testament speaks of, understanding how the foundation for it is laid in the Old Testament, to Help me understand greater and bigger thoughts about Christ. And that is why all of those things are in the book of Leviticus and Numbers of how the people are called to live in the most minute details to help us to better understand through, help us to understand Christ better in the idea of preeminence. If you lived in the Israelite camp, which millions of people did. Your experience was one of Moses being everywhere. <laughs> your experience was that you can't get Moses out of your head. Your experience was that you can't think a thought, lift a hand, move a foot, go anywhere without being Moses front and center saying, think this thought, do that, and go there. <laughs> Not that Moses was physically present in the camp, uh, physically in front of everybody all the time. Of course not. He wasn't omnipresent. Mm -mm. But by the rep repetition of the phrase, as you read over and over and over again in these books, the word of the Lord to Moses. You read how Moses was everywhere in the most detailed and intimate parts of life in the camp. He was preeminent. I have said this about the gospel for our lives, that it is possible for, for us to use the word gospel as a modifier to describe every part of Christian living. And so you have gospel living, you have gospel marriage, you have gospel education, you have gospel parenting, you have gospel peace, you have gospel unity, you have gospel eating, you have gospel everything. You take anything, any part of your life and put the word gospel before it. And what you're doing is you're, 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 you're telling yourself that the gospel applies to this. And so the same was true in the camp of the Israelites with Moses. There was Moses eating there was Moses drinking. There was Moses traveling. There was Moses harvesting. There was Moses' generosity. There was Moses' immigration. There was Moses' to do with 
any kind of intimate detail of life, even bodily excretions. And Moses was there. He was preeminent in the camp. There was Moses in the most intimate details of the camp. There was Moses' sex. Moses was everywhere. He was preeminent. If you've read through those, those books of the Bible, you know what I'm talking about. Why? To understand that, that in the same way, through the Son, the grace of God is preeminent in our lives in Jesus because he is preeminent over all things. In the camp of Moses, Numbers chapter 16, some of them had had enough. <laughs> they said, Moses, your, your power has gone to your head. His name was Korah and his band. And number 16 describes them confronting Moses and saying, Moses, you've gone too far. Something that children in Christian homes often say to their parents. You've gone too far. <laughs> but they came to Moses and says, Moses, who do you think you are? You're everywhere. You've gone too far, and Moses threw himself on his face before the Lord and said, Lord, have I? And the Lord spoke by opening the ground and consuming those that spoke against Moses to vindicate him and to say, the word of Moses is actually the word of the Lord to you. Why? Because I have delivered you from slavery. Just as Colossians 21 describes, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. I've purchased you. I've made you mine. But ultimately, none of the preeminence of Moses could be rightly understood outside of those, that being a preparation for one greater than Moses who was to come, and that's Jesus. So when Jesus come, and the Pharisees are all about Moses. Moses is everywhere to them. Moses is preeminent to them. But they can't understand a word of Moses. They can't comprehend a thing about the preeminent of Moses because they don't understand what it was preparing them for, and their eyes are blind to the one standing in their midst whose name is Jesus. And all of that preeminence of Moses was to prepare for the preeminence of Jesus. As Hebrews chapter 3 says, Moses was a faithful servant in all of God's house, in the house. <laughs> but Jesus has appeared as a greater servant to build the house. And we are that house that Christ is building. He is preeminent in everything. And he has come to make the grace of God as thoroughly preeminent in the lives of those who are in Christ as the law of Moses was to those that were in the camp. Christ is everywhere. He is everything all the time. That is what preeminent means. Praise the Lord. Our Lord is greater than we can imagine or ever ask for. The second word is proclamation. This is my favorite. And that is the proclamation of Christ to us in all things. 
Gospel living is the perpetual, ongoing, practical proclamation of Christ to us in every detail of our living. Notice my prepositions. Please. The proclamation of Christ to us. Do you understand the distinction of the proclamation from us and the proclamation by us with the proclamation that is to us? Yes, there must be a proclamation of Christ by us, and there must be a proclamation of Christ that is from us. But the only way for the proclamation that is from us and the proclamation that is by us to have integrity and to have power is when it first comes from lives that are proclamation too. And it has integrity and it has power when we proclaimed Christ because it is first and foremost proclaimed to us. And being believed in, in every way, in all of our attitudes, the proclamation of Christ to our attitudes, the, the preeminent of Christ being pro proclaimed to us in our attitudes, in our relationships, and, and in our duties. And so the text on the supremacy of Christ isn't merely a proof text, so you can argue with people at the door who don't believe Jesus is really God. And it's a, it's a wonderful text for that. <laughs> but that's not what the apostle's doing here. The apostle isn't simply giving us a creed that we can believe and argue with people about and affirm in our own belief and understanding and say yes if anybody asks the questions, do you believe that Jesus is really God? And the answer is yes. But what the apostle doing, is doing is he's proclaiming the gospel to the church in order that it would be the foundation for everything that he'll go on to speak about, about in, in, the, in their life, in their congregational life, in their homes, in their work, in their relationships, in their attitudes, in, in everything, preeminence, because it's proclaimed to them in everything, proclaimed to us, proclaimed by us, yes. And we give a lot of, uh, and rightly so, we give, we give a lot of time to that. Are we proclaiming rightly? Are we proclaiming faithfully? Are we proclaiming the way that we should be? Are we proclaiming broadly enough? Are we proclaiming Christ? But then the question is, is Christ being proclaimed to the people who are doing the proclaiming? Or is it being assumed? Yes, of course I believe that. It's a wonderful thing to have the preeminence of Christ and all of the grace that it brings into our life constantly proclaimed to us and to have our ears healed in order to hear it. What is proclaimed to us? So many things that, the, that, that 
is proclaimed to us in the gospel that makes up gospel living, that comes to us through the, the preeminence of Christ that's proclaimed that we are loved. That we are loved. And when we, when we, are, when we understand how we are loved and it's proclaimed to us in, from, from such a, a being of, of such great worth, of such great dominion, of such great authority, it humbles us. It should humble us all the time in our Christian life and is what gives our proclamation that goes from us its integrity, that we are, are, are humbled ourselves in the proclamation of the love of God to us and all of the temptations that we have to criticize and judge other people and point out their wrongs and we realize if, I, if God treated me the way that I treat you, I'd be hooked. He proclaims to us the forgiveness of our sins constantly to deal with all of our failure, all of our guilt and all of the things that, that wash over us and, and the things that we have done that, that come back to us. And it's a declaration of the forgiveness of one who is almighty, one who possesses all authority to say such things. It is a proclamation to us of our adoption to deal with all of our insecurity, to deal with all of our anxiety about who we are. It is a proclamation of our new identity as pilgrims in this world. And in the proclamation of that by, by one who is so great and so preeminent that it deals with all of, all of the bling in this world. You know, and it, it's just, the, the church can't be run simply by, by saying, don't do that, don't say that, don't think that. <laughs> and that's how it is with the riches of the world. We need something proclaimed to us in, in the deepest part of our lives that changes our treasure and deals with our grumbling. You ever, like I do, sit and listen to yourself, speaking to your spouse, and I'll, I'll often say to her, wow, I'm sure glad I don't have to listen to myself. <laughs> and I'm resolved more and more to sit in the presence of my spouse just silently. You know, if you could go pro grumbling, I'd, I'd be rich. Sometimes. <laughs> Something proclaimed to us that with such authority, because it rules over all things, that there is nothing outside of the realm of its power and influence and significance and preeminence. Him we proclaim. Oh, thank the Lord for that. Him we proclaim, the Apostle Paul says. I'd like to conclude with a brief practical application, and then I will, in a few minutes, invite Joe and Tanya to come and finish with a personal word of application. I'd like to focus on one significant way that Christ has proclaimed to us to constantly live in the reality of our new identity in Christ. 
And it's so significant that Christ is proclaimed to us and made preeminent to us in this way that we under, in how we understand ourselves, how we, how we see ourselves. To help us learn and remember that we can't extract our identity from the things around us, the good things that God gives us, the good things that we tend to make great things. That we can't extract our identity from our marriage. We can't extract our identity from our parenting or our parenting skills or, or from our work, no matter how good we are at it. Pastors are notorious for this. This pastor is anyway. Seeking for approval and seeking for significance and worth in the approval of others. Lots to repent of. Our identity comes from the Christ, from Christ who has made us God's child. And so the irony of Christian living, if I could point this out briefly, I like irony. Well, no, I don't actually <laughs> when it's in my own life, but uh, uh, the irony of Christian living sometimes is that we, we find our identity in being a good spouse and in a good parent and, and in a good worker. But in doing the, the, those things, we, we make little Christ. In other words, there, there's something beside this thing that should be everything. And as soon as you put something alongside of it, all you have is a bunch of somethings. <laughs> uh, we make little Christ out of those things, idols from which we find our worth and our significance. And you know what happens. The irony is is that those who seek to be such a good spouse find themselves hard to live with. And those who seek to be such good parents bring trouble to their children. And those who seek to be such good workers uh, find themselves failing in many ways because we are fearful, we're protective of the thing that we're extracting. We're defensive. We're anxious. We're insecure, and we're irritable. I've run out of words. Do you need more? <laughs> because life sometimes puts its finger on one of those idols, and it threatens who we are. And so Christ is proclaimed to us in all of his greatness, in all of his sufficiency, in all of his supremacy, the Holy Spirit takes all of that and proclaims it to us as gospel living, saying, this is who you are. And it's a wonderful and glorious thing. Christ proclaimed to us, makes him preeminent, and how we see ourselves as loved, accepted, adopted, and allows us to repent of those things and cling to Christ. So do you want intimacy in your marriage? Do you want wisdom for parenting? This is the most otherworldly kind of thinking that you can imagine. Do you want wisdom for parenting? Do you want integrity at work? Study Christ. Study the greatness of Christ. Let his greatness become preeminent in your life and let him be proclaimed to you in all things.